our uh, scripture. Yes, I don't know if this is working. Uh, I'll just speak really loud. How about that? Um, our scripture reading tonight is Luke 23, verses 44 through 49. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home, beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. All right, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, again, we thank you for this day. We thank you for a chance to come together. We thank you for your word. We ask that as we come to your word, uh, God, that you would shine a light on it through the power of the spirit, that uh, that light would shine into our hearts, that it would shine in this word, God, that your spirit would be uh, the mediator um, and the applier uh, between your word and our hearts. Um, God, that each of us would take from it what you have called us to. Um, God, that we would know you more truly because of it that we would uh, want to follow you um, more faithfully because of it. God, that we would uh, glory in who you are uh, and who your son is and what he has done on our behalf um, as we read about it in, in Luke's gospel. God, we pray for um, our sister churches in Black County. Um, God, we pray for... Uh, each gospel speaking, gospel preaching, gospel teaching church of Blunt County. We pray specifically this week for um, our friends at St. Brennan's Anglican uh, Church um, and their pastor, uh, Doug Floyd, who is there. Um, God, we ask that you would uh, work through them uh, to minister to the members there, God, that you would draw people to them um, by uh God, the gospel message is preached from that church. God, as we join together with them on Good Friday, um, God, that that would be a time of blessing and a time of, of uh, reflection um, as we remember um, the crucifixion of your son, which we will look at um, in depth tonight as well. God, we ask that you bless the churches of our community. Um, God, as we look around, as we read the newspaper, as we as we look on um, the Internet, God, we see various forces in our community that are um, seeking to subvert and to undermine um, your gospel, um, your grace, your goodness. God, to teach and 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 maintain a, a narrative um, that is not true of, of your person, and your character. Um, God, help us to uh, lovingly and gently, um, but God, in all um, truthfulness, bring the reality of who you are before people, that we would teach them um, and, and share with them the truths of your word, and particularly, God, that we would share with them the good news of Jesus Christ, of his life, death, and resurrection in their place. Um, that because of him, we can be made right with you, that we can have a relationship with you, that we can live uh, new lives um, because of the work um, that you were doing through your gospel. And so we ask that that gospel would go forth uh, and that we would be instruments of it going forth. God, we thank you for all these things. We thank you for your word, again, written and incarnate. Um, bless this time. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we are continuing in our in our study around um, the crucifixion of Jesus. Um, and so as I was reading this passage this week and kind of thinking about it, a, a phrase kept on popping into my head. And it was the phrase, this isn't what it looks like. That was the phrase that kept on popping in my head. And so I kind of thought about the fact that usually the way that you would hear that phrase, this isn't what it looks like. 
um, would be probably not, uh, it, usually it would come in one of two kind of contexts. For one, I think we hear it uh, in, and we see it in things like sitcoms all the times, right? There's lots of TV shows and sitcoms that the whole setup is some sort of shenanigans that sets up this moment where people get seen and found out and there's this moment of sort of, this isn't what it looks like, okay, kind of moment, right? And so we can think of any kind of uh, of the absurd situations that, that people find in that. Obviously, the other kind of thing that might come to our heads, was we would think of people being caught in illicit um, sort of circumstances and, and, and trying to justify themselves and saying, no, no, you don't understand this isn't what it looks like. And so there's something about that, that phrase disconnected from those normal ways that we might think about it. There's something about the cross and the crucifixion of Jesus Christ that I kept on thinking to myself, this isn't what it looks like, right? Um, what is going on here isn't what it looks like. To the people who were there in this passage living in Jesus' day, it looks like the execution of an obscure religious leader um, from some troublesome sect in the armpit of the Roman Empire. That's what it looks like. He looks like just one of the countless people who throughout the history of the world, but particularly in the history of the Roman Empire, was chewed up by the oppression of, of some of that system. But then the interesting thing is, is when we come to this passage, the events of this day make it impossible to assume that Jesus is just another victim of Roman execution, right? Stuff is going on here that makes that not possible. Stuff is going on here that makes us say it isn't what it looks like. So we start out there in that first passage, verse 44. It was about the sixth hour. And there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed. So the sixth hour, if you if you know the counting, the day starts at the zero hour, which is six in the morning. So the sixth hour would be noon. The ninth hour that it refers to is, is 3 p.m., approximately the time that Jesus dies. And so what we notice is during that time, the noon to three o'clock hour, the sun goes dark. What exactly is going on there? We don't know in terms of like what it looked like. Did it look like the sun was blocked out by something? Did the sun itself stop shining in, a, in some sort of supernatural way? Like we don't know exactly the, you know, was it an eclipse or some, or it looked like an eclipse? We don't have any of that information, but we know that the, the sun goes dark during that three hour period. Now here's the deal. When you look to the Old Testament, um, the sun going dark throughout the Old Testament is a symbol is a signifier of God's judgment. Um, in particular, it is associated with this, this biblical concept that we call the day of the Lord. All right? There's this idea that we see all through the Old Testament and the New Testament, in fact, but through the prophets, through all, all over the place, called the day of the Lord. And so the day of the Lord refers to this time as you sort of go to the different passages and, and, and bring in all the information, the day of the Lord will be this moment where God intervenes in human history, usually in the context, it seems, of judgment. But also, there is oftentimes an imagery mixed with the day of the Lord where that judgment is leading to salvation in some way. So usually, it's thought that the the, the day of the Lord will be this ultimate day that we are working forward to, right? Working, it's in the future. It is at the end of time or the end of the world. It is at the consummation of all things, right? But the reality is, is that when we read all those references in the Old Testament, there also seems to be sort of types of days of the Lord, right? There's an ultimate day of the Lord that is coming, but there are other moments that you might look at and say, this is a kind of day of the Lord, right? Um, it's a, it's a, uh, it's, it's prefiguring the ultimate one. And yet it in itself is its own unique expression of that concept of the day of the Lord. Joel, the prophet Joel, for example, gives us this description that sounds very similar to the events that we see in, uh, Luke chapter 23. So Joel says this, he says, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is near a day of darkness and gloom a day of clouds and thick darkness, like blackness there is spread upon the mountains. And the further down, he says, the earthquakes before them, the heavens tremble, the sun and the moon are darkened, the stars withhold their shining. 
And a little further on, I will show wonders in the heavens and on earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. All right, we see language like that spattered all throughout the Old Testament and some in the New Testament as well. This darkening of the sun is evidence that the day of the Lord has arrived or at least a kind of the day of the Lord has arrived. God is visiting his people in judgment and also for salvation. But we ask ourselves maybe the question, but in what way, what is, are we zooming in on that is the judgment that is being shown? Because I think there's at least two different angles that we can come at this thing, and they're both true, but one is obviously more central than the other So God is bringing judgment on the people. The darkness and the quaking, in fact, right? We see that in the other gospels. This quaking indicate that this injustice, the injustice of what is going on is taking place. That God is coming in judgment over the injustice of what is taking place. So the, the, the Sanhedrin, the, the Jewish officials, the Roman government have colluded together to put the only innocent person who has ever lived to a gruesome, unjust death. And so there is a sense in which the darkness is a testament to God coming and saying, what is going, I'm, I'm calling out judgment on this event. What is happening here is wrong. Okay, you are doing something that is incredibly evil and I am declaring judgment on it. That might be the obvious thing uh, that we would think of. Right. I got a feeling like that's what the people in this time are thinking. And we'll get to that later on in the story is that they are as they see the the sky go black. They are thinking uh, we may have done something we shouldn't have done here. All right. But here's the deal. That's only one sense of this judgment and darkening. In a more important sense, the judgment that has arrived and that is being signified by the sun going out is the wrath of God being poured out on Jesus as he bears the world's sin as a substitutionary sacrifice. So again, we think in our heads typically that judgment day, if I talk about judgment day to you, that that is some future day. But the reality is, this is Judgment Day. This story is Judgment Day. This is the day on which the sins of the world are being judged. And they are being judged in the person of Jesus Christ. This is the day on which God has decided to judge the sins of the world But what happens? Someone steps in in front. Someone steps in as a substitute and says, I will bear the penalty for the sins that they have committed. The judgment that we are seeing, this that is being poured out on Jesus, is accomplishing something, right? That's why it's the central thing that's going on. That's the, it's the the central image of this darkness, this day of the Lord judgment that's happening. The death of Jesus is accomplishing something that is symbolized in verse 45. And what does it say? Again, this is a weird passage because if you didn't know any context, it would just seem like they were almost like telling you random facts. Like it's sort of like uh, the sun went out and then the curtain was torn. And then this other thing, you know, but they're all connected, obviously, right? In verse 45, it says the temple, the curtain of the temple was torn in two. The sun goes dark as Jesus is crucified. And suddenly the, the, the curtain in the temple is torn. Now, this is presumably the curtain that separated. And if you know, you know, you probably got a study Bible and you got a little picture of it in there. You, you, inside the temple, there was the first court inside the temple that is the holy place. And then there is another area called the most holy place or the holy of holies. That's where the Ark of the Covenant sat. Um, that place is above the the ark is called the mercy seat. It symbolizes the, the essentially the throne of God on earth, and it is hidden behind this massive curtain. And it has to be because man's sin requires that there be some sort of separation from the holiness and glory of God and and 
humans who come into his presence to minister to him. So again, as you're aware, we've talked about all the time, or if you read on your own, only one man, the high priest of that year, was allowed to go into the Holy of Holies only on one day a year on, on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, to make the special sacrifice for the people at once a year. So it's, it's, it's a weird thought to think that this room sits empty. Um, no person is allowed to go into this area except for these few hours on this one particular day. And even for that one man to go in, he has to go through extensive cleansing um, ceremonies, right, um, that God has ordained so that he will be worthy to go in and, and stand before the Lord. But as Jesus offers his blood as a sacrifice, as he offers his own perfect life in this situation, the Bible tells us that suddenly the curtain is torn. Matthew tells us specifically that the curtain is torn from top to bottom. Now, here's an interesting thing. We're not like when you, I don't know what you think of in a curtain. Like I think of like, that's a curtain, right? Like this little thing. So, so from biblical sources, we know this. For one, the curtain's about 60 feet tall and it's about four inches thick. Okay. So you think of a piece of fabric. It's almost, it's more like a rug. Like you think of some fancy like oriental rug or something like that, right? But not just one of them, like a, that it's so interwoven that it is, it's, I mean, it's this thick, right? Um, and something is able to tear this thing, not from bottom to top, which would almost be impossible, but from top to bottom, which is completely impossible. Who could possibly have done this? And what could it mean? Only God could tear this curtain into from top to bottom. And that random fact is obviously representing something. As Jesus dies, as God's judgment is being poured out on Jesus, the divider between God's holy place, his holy of holies, and humanity is torn down. The barrier between God and man, not because God has become any less holy, and really not because man has become any more holy, but because the ultimate sacrifice has been made that is capable of erasing the debt and cleansing mankind for all time, once and for all, to come before God. The book of Hebrews, that passage that we looked at earlier, gives us an interesting little analogy, an interesting little insight, an incredible picture um, about what is actually going on. And we just read it a few minutes ago. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, again, that high priest would have only been able to go in because he had been cleansed by sacrificial blood. Well, now we are able to go in because we have the blood of Jesus. But what else does it say? Verse 20, by the new and living way that he has opened for us through the curtain. Yeah, that is through his flesh. And so this is what the Bible draws this picture of. It says, you know what? In a sense, the thing that was between us and God is, is the flesh of Jesus. And Jesus has to be torn. He has to be broken. And if he is broken, if the curtain of his body is broken, then we will now have access to the Holy of Holies. We will have access to the throne of God once and for all. And so after Jesus has done that, Hebrews goes on and says, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed in pure water. Those ideas of being sprinkled and washed were part of the ceremonial observance that would cleanse that high priest. And he says, uh, your life has been sprinkled and cleansed through the blood of Jesus Christ. And so now we have access to the Father. We see that Jesus' own body is that curtain. And now with confidence, we draw near to the throne of grace. So here's the deal. Those two facts coming together, the connection between the darkening day of the Lord, right? And then this miraculous tearing of the curtain, temp, uh, the temple curtain, they paint for us a pretty blatant symbolic picture of what is taking place in this passage, of what Jesus' death is accomplishing. Jesus is atoning for the sin of mankind and making peace with us and God. And so with this mission of his, this mission that the father has given him since the beginning, with that mission being accomplished, 
Jesus utters his final words, at least his final words in his first life. I'm not sure if that's the right way of saying that, right? His life before he dies and is resurrected. Um, you don't want to say his last words on earth because Jesus says some more words after this, after he's resurrected. Um, you don't want to say his last words in the body because Jesus has still got a body, even right now in heaven. But they are the last words before his death. Jesus then, verse 46, calling out with a loud voice said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. That's interesting because if we go to the Gospel of John, John records different last words. Now notice this, neither of them claim that they were Jesus' last words, just the last word that they record. So we're not talking about a contradiction that we have to figure out here. John says the last words of Jesus on the cross are, it is finished. And we've already talked about those words back, if you remember, when we did our series on the festivals of the Old Testament. We talked about the fact that on that Passover day, right around the hour of three o'clock when Jesus would be dying, that in the temple, the high priest was sacrificing the lamb, the, the particular lamb of the Passover sacrifice. And once he had he, he had killed it, once they had done the, the different procedures that they would have for that lamb and the ceremony of Passover was over, the priest would pronounce to those in who are witnessing, he would say, it is finished. And so we saw the connection there, right, of Jesus pronouncing the words on the cross, where Jesus in that moment is both the high priest and he is also the lamb. And he is pronouncing the completion of the sacrifice. And so we saw that. But here's the deal. Luke draws our attention to something else. Luke doesn't mention those words of uh, it is finished. We've seen now numerous references in Luke's gospel to Old Testament scriptures, right, on various points, particularly in this last week of Jesus' life. And here's something that I have always thought, something that struck me as a new believer reading the gospels. Because you read the gospels and you go, and Jesus has got a lot to say. He's always teaching. He's always giving these parables. He, he says a whole lot. And then he gets to the cross. And, and he's almost silent. Right. He says very little at the cross. And like, I don't know, I have in my mind like these characters from history who are giving these, you know, fiery death execution speeches and stuff like that. And Jesus is incredibly silent when we get to the cross. In fact, according to the gospel accounts, he says seven things, which you may be aware of that, that reality. Seven utterances of Jesus while he is on the cross. So do you know them? You can probably sort of think in your head of them. Jesus says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He says, the one from last week, today you will be with me in paradise. He says, woman, behold thy son and behold thy mother, talking to John and trusting his mother Mary into the care of John. He says, I thirst. It is finished. And Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. Now, I'll tell you what, it's a fun study to go through each of those. Maybe we'll do that one day and talk about the specific significance of each of them. Obviously, we've already done that in various ways as we've talked through through um, the Gospel of John. But it's here's an interesting thing. Luke and John are the ones that we get most of those sayings from. Luke gives us three and John gives us three. If it were up to Matthew and Mark, the only thing that we would know that Jesus said on the cross was, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As far as they're concerned, he's the, that's all that Jesus says while he's on the cross in their, in their gospels. But we've noticed that in several cases, right? Um, Luke gives us extra information and particularly here, Luke tells us something that Jesus has said. And what we very quickly realize is Jesus is actually making reference to other scripture, right? Particularly to the book of Psalms. And so, for example, even of just those seven phrases, we notice that why have you forsaken me is a reference to Psalm 22. I thirst is a reference to Psalm 69. So imagine this, and I think this is the case. We say, man, why was Jesus so quiet on the cross? 
The answer is Jesus was not quiet on the cross. Jesus was preaching volumes, you could say, on the cross. But he was doing it in such a way where he made a reference to something that he expected people to know. And basically saying, if you want to know what my words on this subject are, if you want to know what I'm thinking as I go through this, then I will direct you to Psalm 22. Or I'll direct you to Psalm 69. Or in this case, I'll direct you to Psalm 31. And so what I'm going to do is this. I'm going to read the whole psalm. I'm just going to read Psalm 31, okay? But here's what I want you to just sort of in your mind's eye think. I want you to imagine that Jesus is on the cross, that you were there on the day of his crucifixion, that you were standing in the crowd listening, and that you're you're thinking all the things that, that we would be thinking, right? Let's Let's assume, let's be generous and say that you're not one of the people who has put him on that cross, or at least directly, that you're not one of his accusers, that you're not one of his mockers, that you're one of his followers who is standing far off, which we learn about at the end of this passage. These ladies and these acquaintances who have followed Jesus the whole time and now stand far off watching Jesus, right? As we've said in the last few weeks, like wondering what on earth has happened. How has this thing gone so wrong so quickly? How was it Hosanna in the highest six days ago and now Jesus is crucified? How do we do that? Jesus, what are we to think about these things? What is going on? Give us some word of what we're supposed to understand in this moment to see through this thing, right? Tell us what we're supposed to think. And Jesus says, in you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness, deliver me. Incline your ear to me. Rescue me speedily. Be a rock of refuge for me, a strong fortress to save me. For you are my rock and my fortress. And for your name's sake, you lead me and guide me. You take me out of the net that they have hidden for me, for you are my refuge. Into your hand, I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. I hate those who pay regard to worthless idols, but I trust in the Lord. I will rejoice and be glad in your steadfast love because you have seen my affliction. You have known the distress of my soul and you have not delivered me into the hand of the enemy. You have set my feet in a broad place. That's an incredible thing to say here on the cross. Be gracious to me. O Lord, for I am in distress. My eye is wasted from grief, my soul and my body also. For my life is spent with sorrows and my years with sighing. My strength fails because of my iniquity. You might say, whoa, 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 wait. Ash, what does that mean? My strength fails because of my iniquity? It is his iniquity now because we have given it to him. He has taken it upon himself. He bears our iniquity and it belongs to him now and we have his righteousness. My strength fails because of my iniquity and my bones waste away. Because of all my adversaries, I have become a reproach, especially to my neighbors and an object of dread to my acquaintances. Those who see me in the street flee from me. I've been forgotten like one who is dead. I've become like a broken vessel. For I hear the whispering of many, terror on every side, as they scheme together against me, as they plot to take my life. But I trust in you, O Lord. I say, you are my God. My times are in your hand. Rescue me from the hand of my enemies and from my persecutors. Make your face shine on your servant. Save me in your steadfast love. O Lord, let me not be put to shame, for I call upon you. Let the wicked be put to shame. Let them go silently to Sheol. Let the lying lips be mute, which speak insolently, insolently against the righteous in pride and contempt. Oh, how abundant is your goodness, which you have stored up for those who fear you and work for those who take refuge in you. 
in the sight of the children of mankind. In the cover of your presence, you hide them from the plots of men. You store them in the shelter from the strife of tongues. Blessed be the Lord, for he has wondrously shown his steadfast love to me when I was in a besieged city. I had said in my alarm, I am cut off from your sight. But you heard the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cried to you for help. Love the Lord, all you his saints. The Lord preserves the faithful, but abundantly repays the one who acts in pride. Be strong and let your heart take courage, all you who wait for the Lord. So again, much like Psalm 22 and Psalm 69, there's a lot of the same themes that we see there. God is our hope and our refuge. The evil of men will attempt to destroy the faithful, but God's salvation, his sovereign providence will win the day in spite of their schemes. And that God's faithfulness is unfailing, no matter the circumstances that you see around you. So when I was around, around eighth grade, something like that, um, we had to read for class a medieval morality play called Everyman. Is anybody familiar with Everyman? A couple people. I don't think they read it anymore. The fact that it's obvious that you wouldn't read it anymore because it's a Christian story about Christian things. And we read it in public school. Um, if, if you're not familiar with it, basically what it is is it's a, it's a Catholic pilgrim's progress. Okay, it's like heavy allegory, heavy like, you know, the characters are called like good works and faithfulness and things like that or whatever. Um, but it's about a man whose name is Everyman, um, who is on a hunt to find someone who will go with him to the grave. And again, it, it, it's from a Roman Catholic perspective. And so the theology is not quite not quite what I would recommend to you, but but it's still it's an interesting piece of literature. And towards the end of the story, every man utters a phrase. He says, "In manus tuas commendo spiritum meum." And even as a kid, I went, "Man, I want to figure out what that says." I don't know what it's some Latin phrase. I don't know what it means, but I want to find out what it says. So obviously, I did some research. I looked it up, and it means. Into your hands, I commit my spirit. It's one of the last lines he says in the in the, the the play or the story. And here was something that happened. Even as like an eighth grader, okay, even as a young kid, I recognized that that phrase had an almost summarizing. Um, it was an all encompassing uh, summation of the Christian life. Um. And as Jesus utters it from the cross, it is a summary of Jesus' life. It is a summary of his suffering and his cross. It is a summary of his death. And again, it's a summary of our lives as well. The reality is, is this, is that Jesus is, among other things, but encouraging his followers, even as he is on the cross, even as he is suffering in that moment, he is saying, entrust your lives to God. Again, that's an incredible thing to say when you are being crucified. Entrust your lives to God. Entrust your deaths to God. Entrust your 2 a.m. tragedies. Entrust your doctor's diagnoses. Entrust your wayward children. Entrust your ministries and your marriages. Entrust the meaning of your entire life to God. Lay them in your father's hands. Commit them to him. And even when all seems lost, right? In that moment when everything (laughs) seems like it's all gone sideways, Jesus is saying to us from Psalm 31, This isn't what it looks like. 
What you think you are seeing on this cross is not what it looks like. Death is not final. Evil does not win. And God is faithful yesterday, today, and forever. So again, strange things happen on that day. Luke only gives us a little bit of it. Luke has told us about the darkness. Um, Matthew also tells us that there's an earthquake. Um, in line with that Joel prophecy we read, uh, it gets much more weird than that. The tombs crack open in the city of Jerusalem and various saints from the Old Testament walk out and start walking around the town, talking to people, witnessing to people. I don't know what to do with that. Um, you'll have to figure that one out on your own, um, what that means. It's almost like the resurrection energy of Jesus just goes out into the town and people who have been long dead wake up and, and start singing his praises. I don't know where those, were they zombie looking? I don't know. Was it, I don't know. I don't know. Where do they go? Did they finally just like one day go, okay, it's time to go back to our tombs. I don't know. All I'm telling you is that was just one of the strange things that happened on that day. And it's these strange signs, right? And the presence of God and the gravity of this moment. And what's cool is that they are not completely wasted on even those who have mocked and turned against Jesus. Because you notice how this passage closes. Those people who have put him on the cross, literally, physically, who have yelled insults and curses and mockings at him for hours. All of a sudden, in their own way, they realize this is not what it looks like. We have done something horribly wrong. The soldiers that thought this was just the execution of some rabble-rousing Jew, they realize something is incredibly wrong. The Pharisees and the Sadducees who thought this was just some blasphemy, blaspheming, revolutionary usurper, they recognize this is not what it looks like. Something has gone wrong. Verse 47 says, now the centurion saw what had taken place and he praised God. That's crazy. That's as crazy as the thief on the cross having a change of heart and saying, remember me when you enter your kingdom. That centurion praises God and says, certainly this man was innocent. And then it says this, verse 48, all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle When they saw what had taken place, they returned home, beating their breasts. All right. That's a symbol of uh, sorrow, right? Of of recognition, anguish, of recognizing that uh, we have just done something horrific. This is the same people, right? It's the Sanhedrin. It's the Pharisees. Maybe Barabbas is in that group of people. Who knows? I think that we have to read that passage in verse 47 and 48 um, in light of the story in the Gospel of Acts 40 days from now where Peter goes and preaches the message and explains the meaning of Jesus' death to those people there in the temple grounds and the, the people respond, what must we do? What shall we do? We're the ones that killed Jesus. What are we supposed to do now? And Peter says, repent and believe the gospel. And what happens? The Bible says 3,000 people that day came to know Christ, came into the faith. All right. How is that possible? Well, I think it starts right here because of the crucifixion of Jesus. As they see the signs around them, they go, their heart is broken by this. Now, again, are there some people that aren't? I'm sure, right? There's some people who are rebellious and rebuking and defiant till the end, I'm sure there are. But there are many people who witness this event and their hearts are broken by it. And they recognize the depth of their own sin. And here's the truth. And and I don't, we, we play this out in our evangelism in different ways. You have got to get people lost before you get them found. Okay? If people don't recognize the depths of their sin, they are never going to think Jesus is of any value. If you just walk around and say, man, Jesus is a great savior and he loves you and he wants some wonderful things for your life. They say, cool, I got a career that wants wonderful things for my life. I got other interests and they all want wonderful things for my life. 
The difference with Jesus is, is Jesus can save us from our sins. The difference is, is that we are wicked people under the judgment of God. And your family can't save you from that. And your boss can't save you from that. And your hobbies can't save you from that. And your philanthropy can't save you from that. And your interests can't save you from that. But Jesus can. And so these people recognize their, their sin in that moment. And God uses it. What? Again, incredibly. Even in the midst of judgment, he brings a picture of salvation. He starts that moving in these people's lives. We close with these women at the end and others, acquaintances of Jesus, verse 49, and all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. And again, all I can imagine is that they are in their brokenheartedness and, and the horror of the event that they are watching. They are asking themselves, man, what is happening? Like, how could things have turned out this way? That if they are faithful Jewish women, and if they know the Old Testament, and if they have read the Psalms, and they have heard the Psalms sung and prayed uh, and, and preached on in their synagogues, I hope the case is, is they recognize, just as we've said the whole time, this isn't what it looks like. That what is going on here, that God is working for our good and the blessing of all people who will know Christ. That's the picture that we have. So what I want to do is just go to the Lord in prayer. Again, I don't know that there is an action point for that sermon, right? It's not like, all right, I need you to go home and I don't know, whatever. But I hope what the case is, is that it, again, turns our hearts towards Jesus Christ, turns our hearts towards what he has accomplished for us in his crucifixion, that we would see that as something and that we would revel in it and that we would glory in what Christ has accomplished through his perfect life lived in our place. As we've seen here, his perfect death died in our place. And as we're going to see in two weeks, his resurrection to new life. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, as interesting as we come to your word, God, not only is, is Jesus uh, quiet as he is on the cross, but you are quiet in some ways, at least in the direct context of the passage that we're reading about what Jesus is accomplishing. And yet, just as Jesus is speaking volumes by the things that he references, God, you are speaking volumes to us about what Jesus is accomplishing if we have eyes to see it. So, God, we thank you for, again, for your word. We thank you for the commentary of Scripture. We thank you for the New Testament writers. We thank you for the writer of Hebrews that looks back and explains these things. God, we thank you for uh, the the Old Testament and the way that as we um, read and understand and know um, the themes and and uh, the pictures uh, painted in the Old Testament, but, that God, that they bring um, fullness to the events that we see take place in the Gospels. God, that we know that Jesus um, is becoming our perfect sacrifice, um, that he is dying for the sins of all those who would ever know him, all those who would ever trust in him. God, that he is pouring out his blood so that it might sprinkle us and make us clean, that he is sacrificing his own life to be the lamb of sacrifice for us, God, that he is tearing his own body so that the curtain in the temple could be torn down, so that we could have access to you, God, that we could come boldly to the throne of grace, God, with our prayers, with our cares, with our worries, God, that we can come directly to you, that we can call you Father, because Jesus has won for us a place in your family. God, help us to hold on to those truths. Help us to rest in light of those things. 
God, help us to recognize um, the belonging that we have because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. God, that because of his perfect life, perfect death, and perfect resurrection, God, we will never be cast out. God, that you will watch over us, that you will care for us, God, that you will provide and preserve us the same as you would your own children because we are your children now. We thank you. We praise you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We stand and sing the closing song. Oh, yes, 
Amen. I um, want to do one more thing. Um, I know we kind of got a late start tonight and run a little bit behind, but I wanted to do this before we go. So um, some of you are aware, most of you are aware, but some of you may not be aware that this is going to be Ryan's um, last official night with us, Ryan and Katie. So Ryan has taken a position at Broadway Baptist Church as their, um, as their, give me the title of the position pastoral resident. Um, and so, so he'll be serving in various ministry contexts, um, at Broadway, uh, sister Baptist church who we love. Tony Collins is an awesome pastor. Um, and so, uh, appreciate the ministry that he has in that community over there. But this is what we're going to do. We're going to do kind of like we did, like when Tanner, um, took a position and, and, and moved on, like we're going to come around, um, uh, Ryan and pray for him. And so what I'm going to ask you to do, I think the easiest thing to do is if maybe you and Katie just sit down right where you're at and then we're going to kind of gather around you in a circle. Um, I'm going to ask a couple people to pray. Uh, maybe Marlon, if you pray and, um, if, if somebody else would like to, Kyle, you're his, in his small groups. So why don't you pray uh, for him and we'll just pray, um, and encourage them. You know, he says he's going to come back and visit us on Sunday nights when he can. We'll see. We'll see. Um, but, but we love you guys. Um, I said it is a hard, he, he asked me a week or so ago. He said, Hey, Ash, I got this opportunity. What do you think I should do? And I said, well, if you're asking Ash, what Ash wants you to do, Ash wants you to stay here. But if you're asking me what I think is, is a best for you and what a great opportunity would be, I, I think you should probably do it. And so, so we're excited for him, encouraging him as he continues on in his studies. And that'll be a great opportunity. So let's get around um, Ryan and those who are closest can kind of put a hand on a shoulder and the rest of us can just sort of stand around. And um, Cheeto, why don't you open us and, and Kyle close us and we'll be dismissed. Well, we're going to be today for Ryan and 